Blog Talk Radio. Sorry about that, I think it um, not uh, uploaded right yet. 
so um, I'm going to play a song for you. Here you go. That was Go Fishing In. That one was called Walk With God. 
And now I got the lesson. This is John MacArthur, The Messengers of the King. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called God's Sufficient Word. It will help you see that for every concern you have, every decision, every struggle, every sorrow you face, the Bible has the wisdom you need. Request your free booklet by writing to word at gty.org. That's word at gty.org. This offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2022. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's Grace to You Bible teacher John MacArthur. With great joy, this morning we come to the 10th chapter of Matthew. In our ongoing study of this marvelous, thrilling account of our Lord's life and ministry, we find ourselves beginning a new section, a new dimension as we enter the 10th chapter. This chapter is marked in the first verse by the calling and the commissioning of the disciples. And then in the second verse, they're sent as apostles. It is a change in the pattern of ministry for our Lord. It is a critical part of the training of the twelve. It is a new phase in Matthew's presentation of the work of the king himself. I really believe as we go through this 10th chapter, we're going to learn so much about discipleship. So much about what our Lord did, what he taught, as he trained the men who would carry the baton after he gave it to them. And I believe that as you and I together go through this chapter, our lives are going to be dramatically affected as it touches us in regard to our service rendered to Jesus Christ. Now remember from our last study together that our blessed Lord saw Israel and surely the whole world as a vast field to be harvested. That's why in verse 37 he said the harvest is plenteous. Everybody is involved. He could see the multitude coming to him And then as he looked at that multitude, it stretched across the world and he could see all men as a field to be harvested. And as we shared with you, the harvest is judgment. Jesus saw them in light of the inevitability of judgment, the inevitability of coming doom, the inevitability, the inexorable moving toward hell. They were grain either to be burned or to be barned, to be gathered in, or to be cast out. They had been betrayed by their shepherds, who were false shepherds, who had mangled them and mauled them and mutilated them and left them for dead. And when Jesus saw people that way, He was moved with compassion, it says in verse 36. Literally, He felt their pain. He suffered. He hurt down deep as he himself experienced their agony. And out of that, he calls on his disciples in verse 38 and asks them to pray. And he asks them to pray that God will send forth laborers. 
because it is clear that He Himself can't do it. And so we enter a new dimension in the Gospel of Matthew as the Lord begins to add to His own ministry these twelve men who can increase the potential for reaching the field that inevitably is to be harvested. So the Lord asks them to pray. And then as we saw last time, as we come to verse 1, He calls the very ones He asked to pray to do the ministry themselves. First in verse 38, it's pray. Then in verse 6 of chapter 10, it's go. And then in verse 7, it's preach. The very ones who were the ones praying are the ones who become the ones going and preaching. You see, when they had begun to see the world as Christ saw it, when they had looked with the eyes of Jesus, when they had felt with the heart of compassion that He had, then they would begin to pray. And as they began to pray, they would begin also to see that they needed to go to warn men about the judgment, to invite them into the kingdom. Prayer is never enough, you see. You can't content yourself with just praying. There has to be the willingness to go. Martin Luther had a friend, a very dear friend, who was a fellow monk. They were in the Catholic Church, but Luther became convinced that justification was not by the flesh and the law but the justification was by faith. And he was convinced of that because that's what the Bible said. And he determined that he was going to reform the Catholic Church. And he was going to go into the dust and the heat of the battle head on and be the confronter. His friend said to him, I want to assist you because I believe equally in what you're doing. And they made an agreement. Luther would go into the dust of the battle, he would go down into the world and fight, and his friend would retreat to a monastery. And in that monastery, he would pray and seek God on the behalf of Luther's task. He would hold up his hands, as it were, through prayer. And that's how they began. And the struggle was fierce for Martin Luther. And he reported back to his friend, and his friend intensified his prayer on his behalf. And then one night, the biographer says, his friend had a dream. And he dreamed that he saw the world as a field. And as he looked over this field that stretched over the entire world as he could perceive it in the dream, he saw one solitary man going through that field as big as the globe. And in the dream, it was apparent that such was an impossible and heartbreaking task. He looked closer in his dream, and he saw the face of that one man, and it was the face of his dear friend, Martin Luther. He woke up, and he went immediately to find Luther. And he said to him this, I must leave my prayers, for God has shown me that praying is not enough. I must give myself to the work. And so he set aside his pious solitude, went down into the dirt and the heat of the battle, 
to labor beside his beloved friend. I think that's where we are in Matthew 10. That one solitary person, Jesus Christ, has moved through the field alone until now. And now he is going to call 12 others as ministers. He's going to commission them as his personal ambassadors and send them out. And chapter 10 is the record of their initial sending to assist in warning men of the inevitable harvest of judgment. Now, the major thrust of the passage begins in verse 5. And from there on to the end of the chapter, you have the most marvelous instruction about discipleship. The most marvelous instruction about what happens when you go to minister for Christ. Tremendous insight into what it is to preach and represent the Lord Jesus Christ. And it will instruct us, believe me, and change us, I'm quite confident. But before we get to verse 5, we have to really be fair about looking at the first four verses. They're very simple in terms of what they say. And yet hidden behind them is some tremendous richness that I want you to see. Now, for this morning, I just want to mention three features of the first four verses. Three elements of the commissioning of the twelve. First, their initiation, and we'll talk a lot about that. Then their impact, and we'll talk briefly about that. And then their identity, and we'll talk about that next time. But we see their initiation in verse 1, their impact in verse 1, and then their identity is given in verses 2 through 4 as he names all 12 of them. Now, as we look at this, I want you to do some thinking with me, if you will. I want to just explain to you some of the things behind his preparation and calling of these men, but I want you to see how they apply in your own life. I want you to make them directly applicable to you because I really believe that we're going to look at the way Jesus prepared and called these twelve, and it is a tremendous pattern for our own understanding of discipleship. I want you to learn how you should disciple someone else, and I want you to learn how God wants to disciple you. And I think you'll see it here. This is our Lord's discipling pattern. This is how He trained the twelve. First, let's look at the initiation and we want to spend our time mostly on this, the initiation of the apostles. And we only have one statement. And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them authority. Or, having called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them authority. And as I was reading that, and having called unto him his twelve disciples, I began to think, now how did he do that? How did he initiate this? How did he get them involved? How did he get them to the place where he called them and then sent them? Well, first of all, look at the phrase itself. The verb is proskaleo, and um, it's a simple term. Kaleo means to call. Pros means toward. It's an intense word. It means to call someone toward you so that you're face-to-face -face with them. It has the idea of a face-to-face -face calling 
so that one can receive a commission from the other. This is an official commissioning. He called them before his face to give them commands, to give them a commission, to send them, to instruct them. It's the same word used in the 13th chapter of Acts, verse 2, where God was calling those leaders who were in the church at Antioch. An official, if you will, commissioning. So it's time now for the commissioning of the disciples. And if you'll notice verse 2, he says they are the twelve apostles. They're the disciples in verse 1. They're the apostles in verse 2. They were disciples when they were learning. They were apostles when they were sent. Disciple means learner. Mathetes means learner. Apostle is apostello. It means to be sent. First they were learners, then they were sent. And so this is their transition from being learners in verse 1 to being sent in verse 2. They've been trained and now they're sent. Our Lord is calling them to work with Him. He's calling them to gather some of the lost and mauled and exhausted and prostrate shepherdless sheep before the reapers who are the angels, it tells us in Matthew 13, come to cut them down and take them and throw them in the fire of judgment. It's time to evangelize. It's time to preach the kingdom. It's time, as verse 6 says, to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and going to preach and tell them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so this is a critical point in the training of the twelve, and I want us to focus on that for a moment. There were basically four phases in Christ's training of the twelve. And I'm just going to give you these briefly. Number one was their salvation or their conversion. And if you look sometime, not now, but some other time, at John 1, 35 to 51, you find there an illustration of the initial calling to faith or calling to conversion or calling to salvation that our Lord used in the lives of these twelve. He called many, but there it pinpoints several of them in John 1 who are well known to us. And that is the initial calling. They were called to believe. They were called to Christ in a conversion sense. But then after that, they went back to their jobs, back to their secular employment, back to their homes, and there came a second phase. And that is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. And this was phase two in the training of the twelve. He saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. He said unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, they had already been converted. I believe they had already been saved in the sense that we believe in conversion or salvation. They had already believed in Christ. They had already affirmed that He was the Messiah as they did in John 1. But now He is calling them to leave the nets and to leave the secular employment and to leave their homes and to follow Him exclusively and totally. This is their calling, if you will, into ministry. They'd been called to salvation, that's phase one. Now they're called to attach themselves to Him permanently, that's phase two. And He's going to make them into fishers of men. If, if you'd like to see this in perspective, this was their education. 
They were called out of their employment. They were called away from their livelihood, and they were grown men. They were called away from everything they ever knew about making a living, and they were called to follow Jesus around for three years to be trained. This was their schooling. And by the way, their training encompassed a lot of people. For wherever Jesus went, there was a large number of disciples. Some stuck around, and according to John 6, some left and followed Him no more. But in the midst of this group were these special twelve. And they were being trained along with everybody else. And perhaps even more specifically, because the Lord knew that the twelve were special. Now, there is a third phase of their training, of their calling. First to conversion, then to ministry. Thirdly, they are to be sent out. And that's where we come in verse 1 of chapter 10. This is not the final phase. This is the third phase. And this is a sending out. And Mark tells us they were sent out two by two. They weren't ready to go alone yet. They had to have one another along for support. And may I also add that the Lord stuck with them very closely in phase three. He was like a sort of a mother eagle watching his eaglets as they begin to fly. He was always there, and they're always checking back in all the time and letting him know how it was going. This was their internship. This was the time for them to go out on their first short-term missions assignment and get a feel for how it was out there, to do an internship. And then after a season of this personal labor, they returned to the Lord and they remained again a long time with the Lord, being taught and taught more and more. And by the way, they learned better now because they had been out there and they knew where the trouble was. And they knew what they needed to know. And there was a little more desperation when they came back, scarred a little bit from this first shot at being on their own. Then there was a fourth phase of the training of the twelve, and that was after the resurrection and after the ascension. When Christ went back into heaven, He sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came into them, and they then scattered and went into all the world, discipling the nations, and that was the final sending of the twelve. So there was a conversion phase. There was a calling to Himself for training phase. There was a first experience phase, and then there was a final sending and as we come into chapter 10, we're in phase 3. This is their first experience alone in the field. And he doesn't let them out very far, but just far enough to learn where the trouble is going to come from. Their initiation into ministry. So we call it the initiation. They were handpicked by Jesus from all the other disciples who followed him. He knew they were to be the ones. He even handpicked Judas because that fit the prophetic plan as well. He chose these 12 men to be the ones who would go throughout the world to, to establish the church and verify His Messiahship and affirm His resurrection from the dead as well as His atoning death. He taught them and taught them and taught them and taught them that they might be the representatives of the dynamic of the gospel. Now, in the process of training them, phase two and phase three, Jesus was basically overcoming five manifest problems that they had. And I want to talk about those. These five problems are very common in the process of discipling. I know the Lord is working with me. 
because in a small sense, I am one sent. I'm not an official apostle. Nobody is today. But I'm also sent. The, the Word is still true of me. I've been sent to preach the Word. So have you. And as I look at how the Lord works in my life, I can see parallels as to how He worked in their lives. And one thing really excites me, and that is that He didn't have a lot to work with in their case. And He still doesn't, in my case. And that's very gratifying. He really had a scruffy group of guys. In fact, if, if some phony religionist had written this gospel, if Jesus was some fraud trying to convince everybody of His perfection and convince everybody that He was God, He never would have picked 12 such crummy characters to hang around Him. Because by the time you get to the end of the story, you wonder whether He could ever pull it off with them. And some people might question His ability on that basis alone. It's a marvelous insight into the honesty of God as He sees Christ dealing with men who are weak. And we'll see that in a minute. But as we move to that, let me just tell you a little about the training process and a little about their initiation. And a couple of things in the background. First of all, they were chosen sovereignly. That is apparent. They play a critical role in the history of the world and in eternity as well. And God had it all laid out so that they were chosen sovereignly. It says in verse 1, He called unto Him His twelve disciples. In fact, in Mark 3.13 is a wonderful statement. It says, He called unto Himself whom He would. It was His choice, His will, His sovereign purpose. There was no executive search. It wasn't now, how many of you would like to be apostles? Put up your hand. It wasn't that. If you can't uh, succeed, if you're a lousy fisherman, maybe you'd like to go into the ministry. It wasn't that. They were called by the sovereign will and purpose of God. He knew the men He wanted, and they were not consulted, and neither was anybody else consulted but God the Father. It was foreordained like Abraham, like Moses, like Jeremiah. It was foreordained like Isaiah. It was foreordained like John the Baptist. Foreordained like the Apostle Paul, who was called into the ministry against his will. And so did Jesus say in John 15, Ye have not chosen Me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go forth and bring forth fruit. Sovereignly, God chose these individuals. And that has always been God's pattern. He chose Israel. He chose the apostles. And He chooses His church. And He chooses those who serve Him within His church. So that we who are representing Him are the called according to His purpose. Now, may I add something to that? They were sovereignly chosen, but secondly, they were chosen after a night of prayer. Yes, Christ chose whom He would, but marvelously and wonderfully in His submission to the Father, it occurred only after He sought the Father's will. This is such a wonderful thing in terms of discipling. As we select those that we'll pour our life into, it should be only after great prayer so that God can show us who it is that we are to give ourselves to. Listen to Luke 6, 12. And it came to pass in those days 
that he, being Jesus, went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. He prayed all night. Then this, And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples. And of them, out of the whole group, he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles. They were chosen sovereignly. They were chosen after a night of prayer as the submissive Son in His humility sought only the will of the Father. And in John 17, He affirms that indeed they were the ones the Father wanted, given by the Father to the Son. He says, I have manifested Thy name unto the men whom Thou gavest Me out of the world. Thine they were, and Thou gavest them to Me. John 17, 6. He affirmed that they were the gift of God. And so these very special men, very special, were chosen by God and affirmed by the Son after all night of prayer. So they were chosen sovereignly. They were chosen through prayer. And thirdly, and this is what I want to focus on, they were chosen to be trained. To be trained. Training is an essential part. They aren't chosen just to be sent out. There has to be a training time. And for them, it was a training of three years, walking with the Lord. They left their nets, they left their boats, they left their crops, they left their businesses, they left their tax-collecting stands, they left everything, and they wandered around behind Jesus. And some have criticized. One writer says, they have no occupation. They've given up the pursuits in which they were engaged, their fishing, their tax gathering, and their agriculture. They carry on no business. They simply walk around and behind their leader, talking to each other or to him, and when he speaks to the people who begin to gather, they listen just like everybody else. The only thing they do is go with him from place to place. They are idle, and it begins to be a question whether it's not doing harm and giving rise to reproach that 12 grown men are being kept idle for no apparent purpose and neglecting obvious duties in order to do so. End quote. 12 grown men just roaming around like a bunch of freeloaders. I suppose you could look at it like that. But on the other hand, there has to be training. There are a lot of people who are called to Christ and maybe called to the ministry, and they're like the guy who jumped on his horse and rode off madly in all directions. They just want to go. They don't know where or to do what. But Jesus knew they needed to be trained, to be taught, to become disciples, mathetes, learners, before they could be sent. Moses spent 40 years being trained. Paul only three years. And these three. Moses must have been a very tough case. Some of us have spent three or four or five years in seminary. Others have spent years and years not in a formal education, but learning the Word of God, maybe being taught by another Christian. But there has to be a training time before one can be sent. And I can't imagine any greater thrill than to have been trained by the Lord Himself. Can you? I mean, when I think about that, it's just mind-boggling. 
to just walk around. And in Matthew eleven twenty nine, he said to, to the group, which included them, learn of me. Oh, my, what a training. Listen, learning doesn't happen because you sit in a class and hear a lecture. Learning really happens when you watch a holy man or a holy woman walk through life. That's when you learn. You learn from the pattern and the consistency of life. And that's what discipleship is. It isn't ten weeks in a class. It's walking with a godly person and feeling their heartbeat and hearing them speak and seeing them pray and spending time. Now, I'll be frank with you. It wasn't any easy job to train this bunch. The best of them, their leader, Peter, still didn't have a clue what he was doing even after the resurrection. They were really a defective bunch. And it's good to see their defects because it gives us hope that God can use us. Now let me come to the five things I think Jesus had to work with to overcome. And you're going to see them in your own life. They were chosen sovereignly. They were chosen also by prayer. And they were chosen to be trained. And in the training, the Lord had to deal with five basic inadequacies. And it's the same with us and it's the same with the people we disciple. Number one, they lacked spiritual understanding. Now, that's pretty tough to start with, right? You're going to work 12 guys into evangelizing the whole world, only they have one basic problem. They do not understand spiritual truth. Oh, man. That's a tough way to begin, but that's exactly what he had. They were blind. They were thick. They were dull. They were stupid. They didn't understand the parables. You know, I, I just can't help but chuckle every time the Lord says to them, Do you understand this? You know what they always say? Yes, Lord. Always say that. Yes, Lord. Did they understand? No, they didn't understand. But they were so dull, they did not know they did not understand. <laughs> and so they always say, Yes, Lord. We understand. They didn't understand the parables. They didn't understand the precepts He taught. It was so hard to get through all of their prejudices and their preconceived attitudes. Peter said to him in 15.15, Explain unto us this parable. And Jesus said, Are you also yet without understanding? I mean, don't you understand yet? Certain frustration there, isn't there? He rebuked them. Haven't you got it yet? First class I took in seminary was a very difficult class. And I'll never forget that class. It was going over my head. I didn't even understand the vocabulary. And it was, I was taking Hebrew and Greek and everything else at the same time. I had 18 units in my first semester. And I was under it. And I was trying to listen to all these voices all day long. And in one class, one fella asked a question. The professor answered it professor was in a big hurry to cover a whole lot of stuff that nobody really knew what he was talking about. But he had to get it across to us. And we weren't really listening or paying much attention to it. And another guy raised his hand and asked the very same question that he had just spent five minutes answering. Oh. <laughs> he said to him, Sir, if you cannot ask a more intelligent question than that, do not ask a question. I have answered that question. Well, everybody just sort of went shh under the seat and nobody asked any questions. 
after that. And it was a great lesson about listening. It was a great lesson about taking note of what's going on. And our Lord is saying the same thing. I know now where that teacher got the model. You mean you still don't understand that? You learn to listen and perceive. In Luke 18, just to show you how this goes on throughout the whole time, later on in their time together, He took them aside. Verse 31 of Luke 18, He says, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. Now that should have been a clue right there. All things written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. Wow, we got that. We can figure that out. We know what the prophets taught. He'll be delivered unto the Gentiles, he said, mocked, spitefully treated, spit on, scourged, put to death, and the third day he'll rise again. All the stuff that had been presented in the Old Testament, some explicitly and some veiled, All that will be fulfilled in verse 34. And they understood none of these things. None of them. You know, if I were the Lord at that point, I'd say, are you sure these are the right twelve? I mean, we have been together a long... I mean, couldn't they have understood some of this? None of this? But all the while they were saying, yes, Lord, we understand. Don't be fooled by those who think they understand what you say. Be sure they do. They didn't grasp the parables. They didn't grasp the precepts. And as I pointed out there, they didn't even understand the suffering of Christ. In John 13, Jesus humbled Himself and washed their feet. And Peter said, You'll never wash my feet. And Jesus says to him, Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing, do you? You don't understand. But you'll understand in the future. In Matthew 16, Peter says, You're never going to go to the cross. And he says, Oh, get thee behind me, Satan. You still don't understand. This is the way it always went. And after the resurrection, and Peter had seen the risen Christ, Peter and all of his buddies went back to fishing. Can you imagine? Went right back to where they started. And the Lord comes up there, and of course He rerouted all the fish in the sea so none went near their boat. They were never going to be able to fish again. (laughs) And then He gets them all into the shore, and in effect He says, what is going on? Do you love me, Peter? Then feed my sheep. That's what I called you to do. You see, here he is, clear in John 21, and he still doesn't understand his role. He didn't understand his role. He didn't understand the purpose of Christ's sufferings. He didn't understand the principles. They didn't understand the parables. Lack of understanding. And that's part of the discipleship process. You have to overcome that. How did Jesus deal with that? Simply by teaching. Teaching, 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 teaching. In fact, when he came back after his resurrection for 40 days, Acts 1 says he taught them the things pertaining to the kingdom of heaven. Just teaching, 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 teaching. He dealt with their lack of understanding by instruction. Now they had a second problem. Lack of humility. They were a proud, jealous, envious bunch. I can just see the Lord walking down the road and they're walking behind him, elbowing each other and pushing and shoving and... You say, well, what makes you think those, those are the twelve apostles? You shouldn't talk about them like that. Well, we'll let the Lord talk about them. Mark 9, <laughs> verse 33. They came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them this. What was it that you argued among yourselves about along the way? What were you guys fighting about behind me? See, all the while he's going along, he knows they're fighting back here. 
What was going on? And they held their peace. They just got real sheepish and clammed up. Because they'd been arguing among themselves, get this, who would be the greatest? Nice guys, huh? Real selfless, humble souls. All the time our dear Lord is walking along, they're back fighting about who is going to be the greatest. And He sat them down. And He brought a little child. And He gave them a lesson on humility. Oof. What a rebuke. Look at Matthew 20. Now, the argument got really hot about who'd be the greatest. And James and John had enough gall to get their mother into the deal. And so in Matthew 20, verse 20, then came to him Mrs. Zebedee. And she's got her sons. And of course they worshipped him first because you always do that when you want something. And he said unto her, what do you want? She said unto him, grant that these my two sons may sit the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. Well, I'll tell you, folks, that is really brash. I mean, they wanted it so bad that they didn't have the courage to ask, and they got their mother to do it, and they stood there standing beside their mother while she asked that ridiculously selfish thing. Jesus answered and said, Do you know not what you ask? But that was typical. They didn't know what they heard, so why would they know what they asked? says, are you able to drink the cup that I shall drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they said unto him, what? We are able? <laughs> of course. Of course. We can handle anything. Of course we can. He said unto them, all right, then you'll drink the cup that I'll drink and you'll be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with, but you'll never sit on my right hand or my left. And what he was talking about was martyrdom, persecution, in the case of James martyred him in the case of John, persecution and exile. You're going to go through the pain and the suffering and the anguish. You're just not going to get the right and left seats because they're not mine to give. And then verse 24, when the other ten heard about this, they were furious. Why? Because they wouldn't stand for such pride? No, because they went in front of the other ten. They were mad that James and John were going to get those places. Not them. Their indignation wasn't righteous, it was selfish. And he says to them, boy, you guys are all fouled up about what it means to be a leader. Verse 27, whoever would be chief among you, let him be your what? Your servant. You got it all wrong. And so he had to teach them. And then he used himself as example. Son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give his life a ransom for many. Now, he had to deal with their lack of humility. How did he deal with it? I believe he dealt with it by giving them a demonstration of his own humility. He likened himself to a little child in Mark 9. He likened himself here to a servant. In John 13, he washed their feet and then he said, you should do in your love to one another as I have done to you, right? A new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. In other words, he overcame their lack of understanding by instruction. He overcame their lack of humility by example. He used an example of his own life as a teaching tool. They had a third problem. They had a lack of faith. 
which is fairly severe if you're going to be in the ministry if you don't believe God. They had a lack of faith. Over and over and over again. In fact, probably the most common phrase he ever said to them was this, O ye of what? Little faith. He would do so many things and still they didn't see. In fact, in Mark 4.40, he says to them, How is it that you have no faith? How can it be that after all of this, you still don't believe? How can it be? How can it be? At the end of Mark's Gospel in chapter 16, the 14th verse, it says, He rebuked them because of their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not those who had seen Him after He had risen. They didn't even believe reports of the resurrection. Now, what a bunch to work with. And how do you ever transform them into those that can change the world? Boy, how did He deal with their unbelief? By miracles, by mighty deeds, showing them His power over and over. In fact, the miracles, I'll be very honest with you, I believe in my heart that He did the miracles primarily for the disciples, not for the crowds. They were secondary. The disciples needed to be sure and absolute and confident. They needed to know the resurrection really happened. He appeared to them, and He appeared to them again, and He let them touch Him and feel Him and see Him. They had to know, and He showed Himself, Acts 1, by many infallible proofs. So He overcame their lack of understanding with teaching. He overcame their lack of humility with example. He overcame their lack of faith by miracles and mighty deeds. All of this was part of the teaching process. They had a fourth problem. Lack of commitment. Lack of commitment. They would say, we will never forsake you. Why everyone may forsake you? Says Peter, I'll never forsake you. I would never deny you. Oh, they really talked it up. But when it came down to the crisis of that terrible hour, when Christ needed them the most, they were gone. And Peter was denying, and Judas was betraying, and the other ten just split. Got out of there. They couldn't handle it. They were gone. They talked a good game. In Luke 5.11, you know what it says? When He called His disciples, they forsook all. Isn't that interesting? When He called them, they forsook all. In Mark 14.50, it says, they all forsook. They took off. They deserted Christ when they saw the swords and the staves and the lanterns and the Romans. When they started to smell death, they got out. Oh, yeah, they thought they'd be okay, but they weren't. How did Jesus deal with that? How did He deal with that? Luke twenty-two thirty-one. I just love this. Peter is the issue, his denial. The Lord says, Simon, Simon. Calls him by his old name because he was acting like his old self. Simon, Simon. Listen to this. Behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you like wheat. He wants to test you, Peter. And you're going to flee. And you're going to deny me. But here's the remedy. I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. You stop right there. How did Jesus deal with their lack of commitment? He dealt with it through prayer. I've tried to disciple men in my life. 
Men with a lack of understanding and tried to work with that by teaching them. Men with a lack of humility and tried to work with that by trying to demonstrate the right spirit. Men with a lack of faith and tried to overcome that by showing them dramatically the power of God. And men with a lack of commitment and tried to deal with that through praying for them. Fifth problem they had was a lack of power. They were impotent. They had a lack of power. They were weak and helpless. For an illustration of that, and there are many, but for one would be Matthew 17. They were come to the multitude. There came to him a certain man kneeling down and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. He's epileptic and greatly vexed, and he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. Now they've been out trying to do their thing, and they're, they're doing all the motions, but nothing happens. Jesus said, O oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Who do you think he was talking to? Well, some people think he was talking to the whole crowd. Some people think he was talking to the twelve. Oh, you guys, how long do I have to put up with this? Bring him here. Jesus rebuked the demon, departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. And then came the disciples to Jesus privately and said, Why couldn't we do that? And Jesus said, Because of your what? Unbelief. If you had faith of a mustard seed, you could move a mountain. And you ought to know that things like this only happen through prayer and fasting. Great faith, intense prayer. They were impotent. They didn't have power. How do you deal with that? I believe he dealt with that in one marvelous way. In John 20, he says, He breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 1.8, it says, And when the Holy Spirit has come, you shall receive power. Listen. It's very simple. The disciples were chosen sovereignly by God to be the associates of Christ to found the church. They were chosen through prayer. They were chosen to be trained. And in their training, they had to overcome a lack of spiritual understanding through instruction, a lack of humility through example, a lack of faith through wondrous miracles, a lack of commitment through prayer, and a lack of power through the agency of the Spirit of God in their lives. And the lesson for us is the same. When you disciple somebody, you're going to have the same problems with the same remedies. What a bunch. But as one writer says, in them he saw hidden weakness and incipient strength. There was an abundance of chaff with the scanty grains of wheat which would need much winnowing, but he was equal to the task. The germs of promise were there and in time would yield the perfect fruit. He believed in the men he had chosen and what was more, he had absolute confidence in his own power to make them what he wanted them to be. There's hope for us. Boy, I identify with those twelve, don't you? I'm so glad God could use me. I'm so glad that I can find others and invest my life in them. And they accomplished the task. Yeah, He, he transformed them. He really did. And you know, when they looked at Him in Acts 4.13, all of the hotshots in Jerusalem looked at Him and said, These are ignorant and unlearned men. How is it that they have accomplished this? The, they have literally filled Jerusalem with their doctrine. And they're uneducated. In fact, they're ignoramuses. And they're unskilled. But it says this, they took note of them. I love this. That they had been with Jesus. Isn't that good? How did they know that? 
How do they know they've been with Jesus? I'll tell you how they knew. They did the same things Jesus did. They said the same thing Jesus said. They loved the same way Jesus loved. Finally, the job was done. And they went out as living mirrors to reflect Christ. And that's why they finally wound up calling them Christians, which means what? Little Christs. And it's all bound up in Luke 6.40. Listen to it. A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. Isn't that great? Jesus trained them in three years. And when they went out, they were like their teacher. They graduated. I think graduation day is in John 15 when Jesus said, I will no longer call you servants. That's down here. I will now call you, what? Friends. That was graduation day. They had graduated. That night in the upper room, before His death, He gave them their certificates. They had graduated. Think of it. Think of it. What they learned in being with Christ literally transformed their life and as a result transformed the world. Can you imagine walking every day with Jesus? Can you imagine hearing His matchless wisdom? Everything He ever said was perfectly wise and absolutely true. Can you imagine being with someone who never lost his temper, never got angry, but was only righteously indignant over things that took glory from God? Can you imagine being with someone who cared absolutely nothing for himself, but always gave himself to everybody else? Being with someone who was totally consumed with literally wearing himself out with fatigue to do the will and the work of another person? Can you imagine being with someone who could love anybody and everybody? Someone who could raise the dead and heal the sick and give sight to the blind? Hearing to the deaf, well, it had an effect on them. And you don't get that kind of training by sitting in a classroom. You get it by walking around with a godly man. That's the process of discipleship. They were with Him. They were with Him, it says. The twelve were ordained, according to Mark 3.14, that they should be with Him. That's the process. They were with Him, and they became like Him. That's how discipleship works. And it worked in their case. They changed the world. May I add a final point? They were chosen sovereignly. They were chosen after a night of prayer. They were chosen to be trained. And finally, they were chosen to be sent. And that's why you have in verse 1 of chapter 10, disciples being trained. And in verse 2, apostles. The names of the twelve apostles. They were chosen to be sent. Apostello. Stello means to dispatch. Apa, away from. To dispatch away from. In classical Greek, the word is used almost entirely of a naval expedition sent to a foreign city or a foreign country. In other words, somebody sent a foreign service. All right, you have been trained. Now you're going to be sent. They became sent ones. That's what apostolos means, a sent one. Beloved, it's not enough to be saved. It's not enough to be called to serve Christ. It's not enough to be trained. It's only enough when all of that's done to go. And that is exactly why in Matthew it tells us that we are to go into all the world and make disciples. We have been made disciples in order to make disciples.
The Lord made 12 marvelous individuals with one exception, filled in the ranks later. And in Matthew 19, 28, He says there's 12 thrones for those. They're going to be elevated throughout all eternity. The process was completed in their lives, and we're to be in that same process. Are you being discipled? Are you learning with a view to going? Are you discipling? Are you training someone with a view to sending them to reach others, whether here or around the world? You see, training and sending are two sides of the same coin. Discipleship and apostleship go together. Phase one, follow me. Phase two, leave and carry the message. So as we come to chapter 10, they begin with their first short-term mission assignment. Learning by doing. They're going to go out and they're going to run into all kinds of problems. They're going to come back and when they come back, they're going to spend many more months with Jesus and He's going to teach them off of that experience. And finally, phase four, the final phase, will come when the Spirit enters them and fills them and they go to baptize and to teach all nations. What a marvelous pattern. That's their initiation. The second thing, and I'm just going to mention it, is their impact. When they went, they had an impact. It says in verse 1, they had authority or exousia, which means the right to have power over unclean spirits, to cast them out, and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Why? Because that would demonstrate they were from Christ, because they were doing the very same things He did. And you can follow them all the way through the book of Acts. And what are they doing? Casting out demons and healing the sick. They had an impact. They did the same thing Jesus did. Jesus cast out demons. Jesus healed the sick. They manifested the same kingdom kind of, of power that Jesus manifested. And so they were inseparably linked with Christ. And they had a tremendous impact. They turned Jerusalem upside down. And then they turned the world upside down. And everywhere they went, there was a riot. People were converted because of their impact. Then he talks about their identity beginning in verse 2. Who were they? That's for next time. And next Lord's Day, I'm going to tell you a little bit about every one of them so you get to know them personally. Let's pray. Father, thank You this morning for our time. Thank You for showing us how Jesus discipled men, things He was able to overcome in His power and how He did it. May we learn from this. May we see ourselves in the process of being learners, mathetes, yet to become apostles, apostolos, being trained to go, to be sent. Oh, not in some official way, not in some manner as those special twelve for whom are reserved the twelve thrones, but nonetheless to be sent. Train us, Lord, and help us to train others. Send us and help us to send others that the work may go on which You began. May we disciple all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Lord Jesus and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever He commanded them bringing them to maturity, and then sending them. We pray, Father, for those in our midst who perhaps have been converted. They've been called to Christ. They've come to the second point of being called to serve. Perhaps they're resisting the training. Or perhaps having been trained, they're resisting the final sending. Lord, speak to each of us wherever we are. Maybe some, Lord, who have not yet even come the first time. 
to follow Jesus in faith. Wherever we are, Lord, draw us to yourself. Do your perfect work in each heart. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with grace to you. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit grace to use website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O.com. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as truth, the letter B, then told radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B. T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth, the letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M smilesandstuff.com So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Science, where did it come from? This is Ken Ham, often interviewed on radio and TV on the Bible's reliability and authority. This week we're going to be answering the question, what is science? But first we should know where science even came from. If you study the history of the scientific disciplines, you'll eventually find a father of that particular field. And it's likely it was a creationist. You see, most of the pioneers of the various sciences were Christians. And they believed God's word, or at the very least, theists who believed in a created God. They reasoned that God created an orderly universe so we can study and learn about how it works. Many pioneers wanted to bring him glory through their study of creation. While much of science today is atheistic, it didn't used to be that way. Discover more about science and the Bible when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com.
Why is science possible? This is Ken Ham on a mission to strengthen the church with the truths of God's Word. Have you ever stopped and wondered why is the scientific study of our universe even possible? You see, in an evolutionary worldview, it isn't possible. If the universe is random, just the result of chance processes over millions of years, we can't trust that it will be consistent. Why should the laws of nature work the same way each day, everywhere in the universe? And if we're nothing more than chemicals, merely the result of millions of years of chance random processes, how can we trust our brains to come to the right conclusions? It's only because there's a creator God who made an orderly universe and he upholds it by his power. Now that's the foundation for science. Find resources to equip and encourage you in your faith at AnswersRadio.com. You'll find answers to your questions about science, the Bible, creation, evolution, and more at AnswersRadio.com. We kick it old school. We kick it old school. 
An Interpretation of the Evidence. This is Ken Ham, author of the book on godly parenting entitled, Will They Stand? What is science? Well, there are two different kinds of science. The first is observational science. Now, this is the science that builds our technology and makes medical innovations. It's directly testable, observable, and repeatable. Now, the other kind of science is historical science. This science tries to figure out what happened in the past. Because it's dealing with history, it's not directly testable, observable, or repeatable. And what you believe about the past becomes the framework that you use to interpret the evidence. So when you hear a claim about the past, just remember, 
That's not observational science. That's an interpretation of the evidence. There's so much more to learn about science and the Bible at AnswersRadio.com. And plan a visit to our full-size, family-friendly Noah's Ark when you go to AnswersRadio.com. There's no neutral ground. This is Ken Ham, enjoying the summer at the Creation Museum here in Northern Kentucky. Many people think that science is neutral, that it's all about the data, but that's not true. Yesterday we learned there are two kinds of science, observational and historical. 
Now, historical science deals with the past. It's all about an interpretation of the evidence we have today. That's why scientists often disagree. They interpret the evidence differently. And what you believe about the past determines how you interpret the evidence. If you start with man's word, you'll view it through the lens of millions of years and evolution. But when we start with God's word, we interpret the evidence very differently. This issue isn't the evidence, it's the interpretation of it. We have thousands of resources to equip you with answers to your questions about science, the Bible, creation, evolution, and more when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. Yeah, he made us all, yo. Yeah, God made us all, yo. God made me and you. Sing, children. No, we He did it to show off his glory and worth. In Genesis 1, what we see in each verse is God made a world that is truly diverse. From icebergs to insects, tornadoes to trees. From lions to lizards, flamingos to fleas. Each in their own way, they God they are praising. Their differences cry out. God is amazing. But the crown jewel of the work of his hands are made in his image, both woman and man. We're not accidents, we are part of his plan. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. are never the same. Each person is different, unique in their frame. God made them all, each kind and each sort. He made some people tall and some people short. Dark skin, light skin, and all in between. In each color and shade, his beauty is seen. The Lord knows the number of hairs on your head. Whether brown or black, whether blonde, gray or red. What some call ethnicity and others call race. We should celebrate as the gift of God's grace. You're wonderfully made from your feet to your face. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. We see what God's love is about There's no type of person that Jesus left out Because Jesus died and rose from the grave All those who trust in the Lord will be saved In the book of Revelation, chapter number 7 The church from all times is gathered in heaven Each tribe and people, language and nation All thanking God for the gift of salvation Together, forever, with saints of all kinds Through each the glory of the Lord's gonna shine This is exactly what God has designed When God made me and you, let's go no, we all uh, have a different story. God made me and you. He made us all, y'all. God made me and yeah. you. For our joy. For our joy. And, and yeah. For his glory. Uh, yeah. God made me and you. Say what? God made me and you. Yeah, yeah. Different colors and different shades. All differently and wonderfully made. Through each the glory of God displayed. God made me and you. 
us greatly for the cross. Jesus died, rose, and paid the cost. God made me and you. Different colors and different shades All fearfully and wonderfully made Through each the glory of God display God made me and you For all of our you, all are lost All is great need for the cross Jesus died, rose, and paid the cost God made me and you Our hope isn't in science This is Ken Ham, author of the new family commentary on Genesis, Creation to Babel Over the past two years, we've seen more people than ever looking to scientists to save mankind. But is science really our ultimate hope? Well, no. You see, scientists make mistakes. They interpret evidence incorrectly, and they're finite and limited. While science has helped people live longer and healthier, it is limited. It is not our ultimate hope. Our hope is in Christ. Ultimately, we all die because the punishment for sin is death. We can't escape it. But Jesus came and died in our place, taking the penalty for our sin for us. He then rose from the grave and now offers a gift of eternal life to all who will receive it. Learn more about the gospel when you go to AnswersRadio.com and find resources for the whole family, including visiting our Noah's Ark by going to AnswersRadio.com. Here we go, kids, gather round. A brand new sound to praise the one who has the crown. In today's lesson, we'll talk about the Holy Bible, the most important book we all need for survival. The Bible is God's message for this world. It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life. Now when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool. When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph and Samuel, but all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. Where should we begin? When God made the whole wide world just by speaking. By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up his sleeve. On day number six, created Adam and Eve. Made in the image of the beautiful Most High. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you're surely going to die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. When we read 
read God's word today, the greatest saints have their flaws on full display. And it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used crafts to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a staff. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs the cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey was one of the best-selling books of all time. Well, until the end of the 1980s, when all of its end-of-the-world predictions turned out to be false. Lindsey took current events and read them into biblical prophecy, claiming that we were living in the days of Ezekiel 38 and 39. Magog in Ezekiel 38-2 was Russia. The king of the south in Daniel 11:40 was from Africa. The kings of the east in Revelation 16:12 were China. He detailed exactly how the Battle of Armageddon would play out, with Russia setting up their command headquarters on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, according to Daniel 11.45. These things would happen within 40 years of 1948 when Israel became a nation. The book became a primetime TV special seen by millions and a movie narrated by Orson Welles. So many people thought Lindsay predicted the mark of the beast, the Antichrist, and the end of the world. In a follow-up book, Lindsay said the decade of the 1980s could very well be the last decade of history as we know it. Of course, all of that turned out to be wrong, but it made Lindsay a fortune. Unless he repented, he will be judged in the end as a false prophet. Though Lindsay was a fraud, every prophecy in the Bible is still true. Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. Be ready, he said, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect when we understand the text. Here's a bonus fact for you. The late great planet Earth is often cited as the book where Lindsay famously claimed that the strange locusts John described in Revelation 9 were actually Apache helicopters. Where John said the locusts have crowns of gold, Lindsay said those were the elaborate helmets worn by helicopter pilots, and the women's hair was the whirling propeller. Lindsay didn't make that claim in the late great planet Earth. It's actually in his book Apocalypse Code, published in 1997. Yes, though he was proven wrong, he continued to publish books and make TV appearances as a prophecy expert. Deuteronomy 18.22 says, When a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh, if that thing does not come about or come true, that's a thing Yahweh has not spoken. And the penalty for false prophets was death. Ironically, Lindsay quoted that verse in the second chapter of the late great planet Earth. So it's... Things when a non-Christian like Jordan Peterson critiques the Christian church. It is, of course, completely presumptuous of me to dare to write and broadcast a video entitled Message to the Christian Churches, 
but I'm going to do it anyway. Painfully, Dr. Jordan Peterson's message to the church, mostly spot on. What was the message? We need to do a better job of calling young men up. And it stings because the evangelical church has been calling young people down. Let me take you to some youth groups to see how we have been treating young people for a half a century. Here's a boy licking peanut butter out of another boy's armpits in church. <laughs> there are multiple websites that teach youth pastors how to play gross-out games, like bobbing for Tootsie Rolls in a toilet, or drinking blended Big Macs, or playing baby bottle burp. What's wrong with you, this is the shameful and, frankly, abusive way that we've engaged young people for decades, and this approach couldn't possibly be more wrong or less respectful, frankly, to the young men in our churches. Thanks to men like Rick Warren, the church determined the best way to reach people is to make church attractive to unbelievers, dumb it down, and that's why we have so many absolutely outrageous and frankly, unchristian worship services. Tragically, seeker-sensitive ideologies didn't stay in the sanctuary and moved down the hall to youth groups where we determined if we're going to attract the kids, then we need to be cool, hip, relevant, silly, apologetic about Jesus, undemanding, and downright Dopey. And hope on to, no, 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 no. Mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. Dr. Peterson has seen the rotten fruit of the seeker-sensitive movement, as have most thoughtful men and women, that we have a society filled with young, unmarried men who are totally adrift, not rooted in what the Bible tells us about what makes a man a man. That they have a woman to find, a garden to walk in, a family to nurture, an ark to build, a land to conquer, a ladder to heaven to build, and the utter terrible catastrophe of life to face stalwartly in truth, devoted to love, and without fear. Oh, man, that is painful. You have an outsider looking inside the church's windows and rightly identifying what I think is the single greatest error of the evangelical church in half a century, that we've misread the culture. And in doing so, we have failed our young men. The seeker-sensitive movement concluded, the world doesn't want noble or traditional or demanding. The world wants cool, hip, relevant, fun, trite, and oh-so-light. We try to woo youth with pizza parties and whipped cream games and, frankly, really lame worship music. Now we know what we should have always known, that the human heart craves lofty, transcendent, eternal, and grounded in something that is bigger than ourselves. So here's Dr. Peterson's message to the church. Invite the young men back. Say, literally... To those young men you are welcome here if no one else wants what you have to offer we do we want to call you to the highest purpose of your life 
We want your time and energy and effort and your will and your goodwill. We want to work with you to make things better, to produce life more abundant for you and for your wife and children and for your community and your country and the world. Dr. Peterson doesn't stop there. Just listen to this rather tough talk. It's aimed at skeptical youth. Remember, Jordan Peterson mostly attracts young male followers who actually dig his tough truths that being a man and being masculine is actually desirable. Young men, skeptical about such things. What else do you have? You can abandon the churches in your cynicism and disbelief. You can say to yourself, narcissistically and solipsistically, the church does not express what I believe properly. Who cares what you believe? Why is this about you? Do you even want it to be about you? What if it was about others? What if it was about your duty to the past and to the broader community that surrounds you in the present? Young men desiring tough talk, it's not a new phenomenon. In 2014, a Navy admiral delivered a commencement address where he called young people to stop acting like children. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task and another. This speech was converted into a New York Times bestseller titled Make Your Bed. That little book called young people up, not down, and millions of young men gratefully read a book that told them what to do and called them to grow up, man up, and look up. Tell those who have never been in a church exactly what to do, how to dress, when to show up, who to contact, and most importantly, what they can do. Ask more, not less, of those you are inviting. Ask more of them than anyone ever has. The oh-so misguided seeker-sensitive movement is responsible for more torn skinny jean sales than any other demographic. That's just the pastors and the youth pastors who strain to appear casual and cool. What are we doing in here, okay? The electronic Bibles... Um, if you have a Bible, hold it up. Let me see where you are. You talk about a total misread of society. Young men don't want stupid. They want to be treated seriously. They want to work. They want to do something that has meaning. They want to be involved in something bigger than themselves. They want to be involved in the eternal. And the church keeps cranking out trendy and faddish and unbiblical dopiness in hopes that young men We'll just darken our doorstep because, hey, we're, we're cool. Let's talk to the young men. Let's tell them we want you. We need you. Let's focus on souls and not social justice. Quit fighting for social justice. Quit saving the bloody planet. Attend to some souls. That's what you're supposed to do. That's your holy duty. And might I add, can we stop trying to teach men how to be manly with hackneyed stereotypes that have just about nothing to do with actually being masculine? I'm a man. I'm 40. 
embarrassing. Currently, we lose 60 to 80 percent of our youth once they run off to university and predictably backslide. The statistics, they're clear. Treating our young men and women like children, let's start building them up, calling them to hire, putting them to work the way that God has designed them to be. How a lack of discernment led to peanut butter armpits, drunken pastors, and the fall of a nation. That's the subtitle of my book. It's called Judge Not. If you'd like to laugh your way through a rather scathing critique of the follies of Big Eva, I commend this book to you. Of course I would. I, I wrote it. Available at wretched.org slash judge. Some on the left have begun to question the transgender movement. J.K. Rowling, the woman who is likely the world's best-known children's author, is defending herself against growing accusations of transphobia. This is J.K. Rowling, the creator of Harry Potter, of course, who sparked outrage last weekend with a series of controversial tweets about trans women. No women. I, I mean the old-fashioned ones. You know, the old-fashioned women. Oh, God. You know, the ones with wombs. Oh. <laughs> I'm just saying that when things change this much, this fast, people are allowed to ask, what's up with that? She tweeted, women of the world, we are being stripped of our rights over our bodies, our lives, and even our name. They don't call us women anymore. They call us birthing people or menstruators and even people with vaginas. And I I will say this, and everybody's going to hate me, but as a woman, just because you go change your plot doesn't make you a woman. Right. Sorry. The left will not tolerate this kind of error. For instance, maybe there was somebody in prison and you thought, I can't believe they got 10 years for that. That's horrible. But over time, you started to learn more about the crimes they committed and you met the victims and you saw the fallout and you realized that what they did was much worse than you ever thought. And so what you thought was too extreme of a penalty, you now feel is entirely appropriate, maybe even too soft. What if sin's a lot worse than we think and that the punishment of hell, some of us think, is too much? But we only think that because... We have a bad evaluation of sin and righteousness and punishment. And one day when we stand before God in his holiness, we'll get it. We'll see things clearly for the, for the way they are. For instance, maybe... Thinking, how does one define wise? Feels like yesterday I was a newcomer, fresh in the game, ready to make the truth thunder. But as the beat plays, they lose wonder. After a few summers, the band's ready for a new drummer. Doesn't matter if you're not ready yet. Yesterday I was a cadet, now they call me a vet. But it's part of common sense that the artist time will end. To the young, this topic can be hard to comprehend. They don't come close to understanding how you can go from most demanded to abandoned in the ocean stranded. Surrounded by the waves of your weariness, some things you only learn from age and experience. And it's plain to me that all the famous men you see, the time is coming when they will be a faded memory. Cause one day you hot, the next day you not. One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah. What in the world was your mind thinking? You couldn't see the sand of time sinking. Cause one day you hot, the next day you not. One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah. Better plan for the future, kid. Time catches up to everyone, no matter who yeah. it is. Whatever happens. 
happened to so-and-so? That's what they want to know. Eventually we learn that they all come and go. Today's rising star, tomorrow dies with scars. Today they all struck, tomorrow you washed up. I remember watching Jordan's Hall of Fame speech. Thinking this is what it's like to watch the lame reaching gas, but he tries to grasp what lies in the past. Never to return, what lies in the past? Did he tell himself? Was he lost or sober? Did he know it was all but over? The moment that AI crossed him over? If I could be like, didn't include dying light. Let's shine the light on the one they call Iron Mike. Nowadays he's known for being all weird. But back in 88, nobody was more feared. At the peak of his powers, his opponents would retreat in moments he would eat and devour. Snuff with punches, but we must discuss this. Crushed it just enough to trust his toughness. Pride brings such to justice. You puffed up with smugness? You gonna meet Buster Douglas. Amazing that, which blazed like petrol. The new praise that made the waves in the metro. Was praised for days, but just a phase like retro. And phase like echoes. Echoes, echoes, echoes. Cause one day you hot, the next day you not One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah What in the world was your mind thinking? You couldn't see the sand of time sinking Cause one day you hot, the next day you not One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah Better plan for the future, kid Time catches up to everyone, no matter who it is What I'm speaking on is seriously welcomed by the few Even no experience to tell you that it's true On your radio station, this won't be found on the playlist Wisdom, the sound of the sages, resounding for ages The older I get, I notice it The whole of the script, hmm, it's found in the pages A holy writ, not the cash speech of the reverend But what a man sees under heaven Ecclesiastes 111 No matter who you are, death aims to stop ya Whether banker, doctor, or Frank Sinatra Before your time is done, meet the timeless one The dying, death-defying, rising, shining sun King Jesus, astounds and amazes He pounded the pavement to save those who were bound to their cages So let us praise the one who made the Everglades Our debt was paid, so in glory we'll Never fade, 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 never fade. Hey yo, they said it was over, man. They said it was over. But it ain't over. We just getting started. Yo, 7,000, we all at. Let's go! Stand up, stand up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, stand up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing. And forever say, worthy is the land. What's up? Surprise, no surprise, I'm back. With Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection More power than gravity His knowledge and strategies confound the academy Bow to his majesty He paid sin's salary Took up blame on Calvary Those who love his name spread his fame is the policy All eyes on the matchless price of his sacrifice Let's prize our master 
fights and rise in the afterlife. What, did we forget about the holiness of God or something? Did we forget that God owes us a rod or something? See the snake bruise when Christ came to save dudes who hate truth. The gospel is not fake news. I got to sin, the gospel sweeter than it's ever been. Ain't nothing changed, let us sin, we got the medicine. It's still human emergency, the serpent attack. You think Jesus can't save? That's alternative facts. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land what's up stand up hands up does anybody love the son of man trust jesus is the king so his people we will sing and forever stay worthy is the land what's up stop and listen to my composition lots of rhythm but not traditional kind of different but god's consistent no contradiction my proposition through crucifixion he mocked and crippled his opposition it's not some fiction i'm spitting the son of god is risen and my incentive for godly living is i'm forgiven jesus came to unlock the prison and through the spirit he brings a new birth like an obstetrician at times i listen a lot of christian hip-hop is missing the proper vision it's my suspicion we drop the mission not to this but the word of god is it not sufficient the doctrine is that the gospel fixes our shot condition god the spirit supplies conviction through proper diction against the backdrop of our tradition the gospel glistens a squad of christians go out and witness a god's commission because jesus christ got the top position no competition Stand up hands up if you truly love the son of man trust jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land what's up stand up hands up does anybody love the son of man trust jesus is the king so his people we will sing and forever stay worthy is the land what's up they want jesus in the background like elevator music but we gonna celebrate and relegate them we refuse it they hate christian hip-hop i peep myself they say we're too redundant well let me repeat myself so what i gotta say almost feels too real estate sit back and feel the weight of what a real estate because yo jesus christ got me in the real estate i'm purchased property i feel like i'm real estate if the father wasn't gracious no synonym again he came straight blameless no synonym again nothing's been the same since no synonym again fakers lack his fragrance no synonym this is not the picture in a frame to still jesus nah we serve the rock the harder than still jesus so how we gonna be silent let the world still jesus when the world and its trends pass away it's still jesus then up, hands up, if you truly love the son of man, trust, Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land, what's up, stand up, hands up, does anybody love the son of man, trust, Jesus is the king, so his people we will sing and forever stay worthy is the land, what's up, Truth Be Told Radio, they'll go out with Yancy and friends and the VLE. Bye for now.